for Abel, would you remain standing? And then for the reading of God's Word this morning, we're turning to 1 John chapter 2. And we're reading verses 12 through 14 of 1 John chapter 2. This is the word of our Lord, 1 John 2, verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young man, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are weak, but Christ is strong, and we pray that in in his strength we would be fed through the proclamation of His Word, for asking Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. After spending the previous chapter and the third trying to give the church a tools to separate the true believer from the false believer in the church. John steps back, he kind of uh, uh, takes his gas off the gas for a moment, and proclaims assurance to the true believer. He wants to encourage the true believer. He knows that there would be some who were true believers in the church and would hear what he was saying about the tests of faith and the test of obedience, the test of love, the test of believing in the right Jesus as defined by the Bible, and they would question their salvation even though they were true believers. They would say, have I really obeyed God's command? Do I really love the brethren? Do I really get Jesus right? So he takes the time here to encourage them. If you're following the argument of 1 John, these three verses are completely outside of what the argument is. You could remove these three verses from the passage, from the book, and still be able to follow uh, the argument of of John without a a hitch here. Uh, 1 John 2, verses 12 through 14, gives an important word of assurance to the humble faithful believers of this local congregation that John was writing to. And because John is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his words are not only applicable to that local congregation to whom he first wrote, but to all of us here today. So when John speaks and writes these words of encouragement, he's speaking to us today to encourage you who truly believe in Jesus Christ to show that your assurance is not in you, but in the work of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to answer three questions regarding these three verses. The first one is, who are these three groups of people? If you notice, he lists little children, young men, and fathers. Who are they? Then I want us to ask the question, why these three groups? Why not other ways to refer to these three groups? And lastly, what is it that John is saying to these three groups of people in these three verses? So first, who are the three groups? 
A lot has been written about who these three groups are. Commentators are not super helpful in this passage because they spent most of the time writing on these three groups and then why John used two different words for children in the passage. Now, in the first word of the use of, of first use of the word children here is one Greek word, and the second time is a different Greek word, and they spent literally hundreds of pages put all together discussing why, just to arrive unanimously to the conclusion that it doesn't matter. That they are synonymous. They mean exactly the same thing. The best explanation for these three groups is that these are not age groups but they are actually maturity groups. Maturity in the faith groups, not necessarily chronological age on the earth. It's true that John uses the, word little ch- the words little children to refer to the church as a whole. We already sa- saw that in verse 1 of chapter 2. And he does that several times in 1 John and the other books he wrote as well. But here John probably means something more specific when he says little children than everyone in the congregation especially because you see three groups separate, separated here. So we, we think that this, these words, little children, are not referring to everybody, but a specific group of people. So little children isn't referring to those who are chrono, chronologically very young, but to those who are new Christians. The little children are those who are new in the faith in this particular passage. Young men doesn't simply isolate only the younger males in the congregation, but all those who are young Christians who are growing in grace. They're not yet old in the faith. They're not newborn babes in the faith. They're young in the faith, but growing and strong. And then fathers is not simply referring to the 75 and older crowd in the church, is referring to those who are spiritually mature. We can see this from the comments that John attaches to each one of them. Now, having said that, that was, I think, 100% true of that church in the first century, where we are the best at the second generation of Christians. Christianity hasn't been around for that long, so you can have older people who are very young in their faith and, and so on, but generally now, in our days, these, these level of maturities will be somewhat equivalent to chronological age as well, because the Christianity has been uh, uh, around for a while. So these are who the three groups are, people who are at different stages of their faith. Now, why the three groups? Uh, John realizes that every segment of the church all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as far as maturity is concerned, will struggle with lack of assurance at one time or another. Every person in the church of Jesus Christ is going to experience, and sometime of his life or her life, uh, a lack of assurance, a struggle with the reality of his or her faith. John realizes that. But each segment, depending where you are in your walk with Christ, will struggle in a different way. There are different things that we struggle with as we grow from uh, new in the faith to being a veteran in the faith in Jesus Christ. Notice as you read there, verses 12 through 14, that each segment is told something that is actually true of all believers, not just of that particular group. Have you noticed that? 
Look at what he says to the children. In verse 12, he says, Children, your sins are forgiven for Jesus' name's sake. Is that true only of those who are new in the faith? No, it's true of everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He also says in verse 13 concerning the children, that children, you have known the Father. That's also true of everyone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. To the fathers, John says that they have known Jesus who is from the beginning, verses 13 and 14. And to the young men, he says that they have overcome the wicked one, that they are strong, and that they, the word of God abides in them. These are things that are true of everybody. So why does he apply to these three different groups in the church when they are true of everybody? Well, John seems to suggest this. He seems to suggest that new believers struggle with the idea that their sins have been forgiven. Growing believers struggle with the idea that they are equipped to do the work that God calls them to do. And mature believers struggle with some aspect of knowing Jesus. That seems to be what he's saying here. That's the accent he's placing in these three groups. Yet all believers can have these struggles regardless of the stage they are in their walk with the Lord. So what does it say to these three groups? As we look at them, as we look at the content of what John tells them, and as we look at what John uses to encourage each group, we too can be encouraged by it, regardless of where you are, regardless of where we are in our walk with Christ. So it might be profitable for you to try to identify yourself with one of these groups, uh, either young in the faith or growing in the faith, not, not a babe anymore, but not yet you know, fully mature or a mature saint. But also, I want you to benefit from everything that John is saying to every one of these groups, because it's true of all of us as well. And John says six things that should encourage us greatly. He says that you, believer, your, your sins are forgiven for Jesus' name's sake. He says that you have known him who is from the beginning. He says that you have overcome the wicked one. He says that you have known the Father. He says that you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And I want us now to take the time to look at each one of these six things as we think of ourselves in light of what John is saying here. So if if you are a true believer, all these things that I'm saying are true of you, whether you feel like they are or not. They are true of you. If you are an unbeliever, none of these things are true of you. Your sins have not been forgiven. And if you don't repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have to give an account of those sins on your own before the Father. And it's a dreadful thing to stand on your own before the living God. But to you, believer, John says, your sins are forgiven for Jesus' name's sake. Look at verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. John is pointing us to the objective ground of our assurance in God's work of, of, of salvation, of forgiveness. Believer, brother, sister, do you find encouragement in knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Does it matter to you 
My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Is that the reaction of your soul as you hear that your sins have been forgiven? Christians are not forgiven because of something we do. Praise the Lord for that. We are not forgiven because we deserve it. We are not forgiven because we are different in some way from other people who do not receive the gracious, merciful forgiveness of God. We are forgiven because of Christ. We are forgiven because of God's mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. The basis, the basis of our forgiveness is outside of us. So the assurance of our forgiveness is also outside of us in Christ Jesus. It is in what God has done. Now, our Christian, hymn, uh, Christian hymns sing about the glory of this truth, don't they? When John Newton came to understand that he was a forgiven sinner, he sang, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And Augustus Top Ladies, Rock of Ages, says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou, thou, thou alone. There was nothing that John Newton or Augustus Top Lady or any of us could do in order to cause God's forgiveness of us. God's forgiveness had to be freely given to us in the just sacrifice of Christ, our Savior. Believer, we were under our, our sins, and when God forgave us, He did not forgive us because of something in us. He forgave us because of the person and the work of Christ Jesus, the sinless Savior, and who lived a life of, perf of perfect obedience to the law in our place, dying the death of the cross in which our penalty was imputed to Him, declared to be His, and His righteousness imputed to us. And this is the basis of our salvation, and therefore this is the basis of our assurance. Do you believe in that? Do you believe that that, that is the basis of your salvation? If, if you do, rejoice, be assured, you are declared perfect in the sight of God, and nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. Not the world, not the devil, and not your worst enemy. Yourself, myself. Secondly, John says that you, true believer, you have known him who is from the beginning. Him here is Jesus, since John refers to the Father by, well, the word Father. As a believer, you have met Jesus Christ when you first came to faith, and you continue to know Him today. That's the implication of how John writes this particular verb. You have known Jesus, you've come to know Him, and you continue to know Him today. The impact of meeting Him yesteryear continues today, and will continue forever, because Jesus doesn't change. To know in the Bible is to have an intimate relationship with the eternal Jesus. 
the one who was from the beginning. The Apostle Paul says this in First Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter one, verse twelve. For this this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. You know how the verse goes? For I know whom I have believed. Not I know what I have believed. It's important too. But I know whom I have believed. And that, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. Believer, what is it that you have committed to Christ? Isn't that your very soul? He is going to keep you, your heart, till the very day of his return. Thirdly, John says that because you know the Son, you also know the Father. They go together. If you know the Son, you know the Father. When, when arguing with the Pharisees in one of his many arguments with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, Jesus himself says this. Well, the Pharisees first say, where is your father? Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father. Even talking to his disciples in John chapter 14, where I think it's Philip that says, show us the father. And Jesus says in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Do you know Jesus? You also know the Father. He is your Father. Don't you think that is God could have chosen to reveal himself primarily by any title? He could have revealed himself as just the supreme creator, which he did. He could have revealed himself just as the, the absolute sovereign, which he did. But... When the New Covenant opens in the scriptures of the New Testament, what is his favorite term? It's Father. Not any Father, not an abusive Father, not an absent Father, but a loving Father. And when you, believer, know Jesus, you know the Father. You know the Father. And to know the Father, the Bible says, is to have eternal life. In John 17, verse 3, while praying, uh, for himself, for his disciples, and for us, Jesus says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have seen, sent. So, believer, you know the Father. You know what that means? You have eternal life. It's not that you will have eternal life. You have eternal life now. You can be assured of eternal life now. And the Father who created all things, and the Son through whom... All things were created are known by you, and you are known by them. In the Minor Prophets, God says that of all the families of the world, I've only known you, Israel. It doesn't mean that God is ignorant of everything else, but there is some intimate knowledge that God has of you as His people that's not true of anybody else. You are known by Him. Not only you know Him, but you are known by Him. He's interested in you. He's interested in how many hairs you have. He's interested in knowing everything about you. He's interested in the mundane things of your life. He is active and acting in everything that makes you you. And the Savior who knows you calls you friend. Can you imagine that? You and I who sent Him to the cross of Calvary... You and I, whose sin separated him from his eternal father, 
You and I, who caused the misery of his life, he turns around and calls us friend. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a, a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Believer, you are a friend of Jesus. And Jesus is your friend. John also says that you have overcome the wicked one. More on this last week, next week. That didn't make sense. More on this last week. More of this next week as we look at verses 15 and on. But today, think of this. Together with the encouragement of being strong and filled with the word of God, this encouragement is given to the young men. To that, that group in the church. And the reason for that is this, at least I think it is, it is this segment of the church that, that does most of the work in the local church, in missions, in schools, and every that that the, not the super young, not the older, but the middle people. That that's who does just most of the work in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit tells them that they have what it will take to accomplish what God calls them to do. It can be very discouraging at times in the work of the Lord. Am I, am I equipped to do this? Can I do this? Uh, this seems to be much bigger of a task than I can do. And, and John says, brother, sister, you have everything. Everything to do to do the things that God has called you to do right now in your life. You don't have to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow brings its own grace. But for today, whatever it is that God is calling you to do in your life as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a brother, as sisters, whatever it is that you are called to do today, you're equipped to do so. You're strong, you've overcome the wicked one, and the word of God dwells in you. You're ready to go. John is saying here that they and we have experienced a definitive break from the bondage of Satan. You have overcome the wicked one. To put in the language of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, we had been dead in sin, but now we are alive to Christ. To put in Paul's language in Romans 6, once we were in bondage to sin, now we are no longer under the dominion of sin. In other words, we, are not, not only, we have not only been forgiven, we have not only had the penalty of sin broken in our lives, but we have had the power of sin broken in our lives. Now, these, these are strong words. John says, the Christian has overcome the evil one. The Christian has overcome Satan. The thing is, most of us don't feel like we have overcome the evil one 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Is that fair to say? We say, but look, there's this besetting sin in my life, or there's this set, this cluster of besetting sins that I've been praying against and fighting against for 28 years. And I'm still fighting against them, and I don't feel like I've been, have, I've, I'm having dominion over it. How is it true that I have overcome the wicked one? This is what John is saying. John is saying, 
that even that besetting sin reminds you that you have been liberated from the bondage of sin. Because there was a time when we, we, you were in bondage to all sin. Like you feel like you are to that besetting sin today. You couldn't even see your need. And you couldn't even see the Savior until He came. And He lifted you out of your bondage and your sorrow and your night of sin. Christian, John says, are sanctified people. They've experienced deliverance not only from the penalty, but the power of sin. And that's why... He calls them strong. And that's why he says that they have overcome the evil one. Christian, the struggle that you have with sin is a witness that you have overcome the wicked one. Because had you not be that overcome the wicked one, you have no struggles whatsoever. Do you get that? You just go on sinning. There'll be no struggle. There'll be the desire of your heart. But because the desire of your heart is to please God, there is struggle. The struggle is a witness of the grace of God in your life. Praise the Lord for that. Once we were weak and helpless before sin, and now by the grace of God, we are fighting against sin. I want to say a word, though, to the people who grew up as covenant children in the church. So, Hoi Chicas. Their dad calls you all the time. And Charlotte and the Hunters, and I've done it again, named every name and then forgetting names to name. You who grew up in the church, young and old, it might be that you never experienced in your life a time where you felt dominated by sin. Do you know, that, do you know what those of us who didn't grow up like that say? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that you've never had a time where you felt dominated by sin. That's just God's glorious covenant mercy upon you. But these things were true of you as well. There was a time, even if it was in your mother's womb, that God took a heart of stone out of you and gave you a heart that's able to believe in Him. And it's His sheer mercy upon you to have that. So don't feel like that you have to somehow experience some badness in your life before you can be a really serious Christian. Praise the Lord that you don't have that experience. And go on in serving Him, knowing that you have overcome the wicked one. And to all of us, John says, the Word of God abides in you. When we believe in Jesus, we abide in Him, and He abides in us. He and His Word are always one, working together. So for you who claims to be a Christian and don't really read your Bible, that's a false claim. At least you don't have any reason to claim that, because the Word and Jesus go hand in hand. They work together, one through the other. And this abiding does not happen independently from the Word. God does not, Jesus does not abide in us independently from His Word. Remember what John says, or Jesus says in John chapter 15, that He's the vine, we are the branches, and in, without Him we cannot do anything. And if we're, abiding, if we're abiding Him, and His Word abides in us, verse 7 of John 15, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you.
We, re- we read the Word of God in the Bible and it dwells in us, and the Spirit uses that Word that is in us to keep us connected with Christ. So when John exhorts them to not love the world in the following passages, he appeals to the fact that they have had victories and that Christ has given them the ability to overcome the world because the Word of God dwells in them and Christ dwells in them. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. The Word of God encourages you. Your sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ. You know Christ and you know Him ultimately, the one who is from the beginning. You have overcome the wicked one. Every one of you who is a true believer in Jesus Christ have overcome the wicked one. You have known the Father. You are strong. Some of us may not feel like that right now, but John tells you, because Christ is in you, you are strong. And the Word of God abides you. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Christ is your Savior. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you've given us the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you increase our faith in him. We believe, but there is unbelief in our hearts. We pray that you would help us in our unbelief. We pray that your word would dwell mightily in us and that your spirit would have his way in our hearts. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.